I've never done a live podcast, but I have done that thing where you put a song on in the car that you think your friend will like, and then you're just waiting <laughs> while they listen in silence <laughs> awkwardly. And you're like, it's, it's good, right? Tell me you like it. Use Aero 52. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. So we're back, and we've got exciting news. We've now got a forum, thanks to you, Popey. So community.error.show, is it in a fit state for people to go and sign up and start posting? We'll soon find out when you tell everyone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, I used a droplet on DigitalOcean and used their automatic wizardy thing to set up discourse um, and we thought it'd be a great way for people to engage with us and let us have some feedback and also give us questions for Ask Error. Yeah, so you're communitizing the community. Good plan. Totes. So yeah, community.error.show. Go there and sign up and stuff. Have your say. And of course, you can just tweet us, hashtag Ask Error, or you can go in the Telegram group as well. So let's start with a quick hashtag Ask Error. Does the pronunciation of words like Ubuntu, Ubuntu, Ubuntu matter in the slightest? It's not Ubuntu. <laughs> Ubuntu, yeah. Ubuntu. What do we think then? Does it really matter, these words that you usually only read? I, I don't know. Some people get really um, uptight about this and feel the need to correct other people. Like, this has been like long before Ubuntu or Ubuntu or whatever you want to call it, or Ubuntu, as some people call it. Um, long before Ubuntu, people used to get really knocked about people calling it Linux instead yeah. of Linux. And like the whole point of language is to convey um, messages and convey understanding. And if I said to you Linux, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've understood the word that I have said. It doesn't, it doesn't need explaining to me that it is Linux or Linus says it like this or um, you know, th this advert, they have it like this, or there's a pronunciation guide on Wikipedia. I don't care. The fact is that you were talking about Linux or Linux, and I understood that message, so the language worked. There was no ambiguity there. I knew what you were talking about. If you said in a really bizarre way that I couldn't understand the word, then sure, I might say, do you mean Linux? Or do you mean <laughs> GNU slash Linux? Then I can understand that. But if if you're trying to convey a message and the message gets across, then you don't need to go around correcting people. We've definitely got this like historical kind of being bad at naming things that are easy to say thing about like the entire open source world though, right? Like you wouldn't want to name your company something with a lot of syllables like elementary. I don't know. It just wouldn't come out of your mouth easy. Yeah, or you wouldn't want to name your desktop after the, the concept of everything being God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, quick question from me that's just spontaneously popped into my mind. What do you call that file that is in slash etc that you use to uh, auto mount file systems? <laughs> um, I, I always call it FS tab. Because it is the file system table. Yes. Dan? Oh, yeah. See, I never knew what that was. So I just read it FS tab. Yeah, I did as well until I worked out why it was called FS tab. But then what do you call that file system that is, I can't believe it's not margarine, the other one? What do you call that one? Uh, I don't know. I go back and forth between ButterFS, BTREFS, BTRFS. I don't know. I heard that it's supposed to be BTREFS for some reason, but yeah, I just yeah. call it ButterFS. Yeah, I don't care. So, uh, you know, the the thing that I, I get most annoyed about 
is the people who correct you for saying something in inverted commas wrong are the same people who will say other things wrong and will be fine with that. Like people will tell me that I say Ubuntu wrong, but they will say that Finnish manufacturer of mobile phones from the past wrong. Nokia. Yes. Or they will say <laughs> the name of that uh, sports brand of shoe wear where they have a swoosh. They will say that wrong in inverted commas. Well, it's technically Nike and anyone who says anything else is wrong. Well, there you go. Yeah. You've just proved the point that like, <laughs> you can say things wrong, but correct other people. It's mass hypocrisy and I hate it. However, I will laugh at people who say stuff wrong that is funny. You know what I do that I know is internally inconsistent and I'm wrong for doing it, but I just do it that way anyway, is with like library names where it's libfoo, but it's foolib. I don't know why I do that. What? Yeah. That's weird. I don't know why I do it. I can't stop doing it. I just... <laughs> Freak. Because it's a library, right? So it's foo library, foo live, but it's lib foo, obviously. You wouldn't call it lib foo. No, that would be deranged. I think you're a bit of a wrong end. Yeah. <laughs> right, let's get serious again. So in recent months, we've seen a cracking down of right-wing nutters on various internet services. The likes of Alex Jones have been kicked off Twitter and stuff. And relatively recently, Gab was effectively shut down. It's risen from the ashes again now. That's the kind of uh, Nazi Twitter, I suppose it's fair to call it. They would say, no, it's free speech Twitter, but whatever, it's full of right-wing bastards who I hate. So the question is, is it right for tech companies to silence these right-wing nutters? Who says they're nutters? Whose who's, uh, measure do you use to say that they're nutters? And do they also silence left-wing nutters as well? It's not such thing as left-wing nutters. Some would say <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn is a left-wing nutter. No, he's the, he's the messiah. <laughs> no, they clearly are left-wing nutters. I mean, like, a lot of the Antifa people, if they can even be called left-wing. I think it's pronounced Antifa. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I think the line has to be, like, are they inciting violence? Right. Is, is this like there's a difference between, you know, you're just saying stuff and like um, your speech is actually like either declaring intent to do harm or inciting others to do harm. Right. Right. And and some people are particularly clever. So labeling them nutters is, is tricky because they're particularly clever at dancing very close to that line, but not crossing it. Or if they do cross it, immediately deleting the tweet and rewording it, or, you know, claiming it was misinterpreted, or that's not what was being said. It's, you know, if you're, if you're clever with language, you can make it seem like you might be inciting, but you're actually not. And other people misinterpret it, and they will reshare your message. And you're, the people who read your messages might interpret it that way and reshare it and perceive that as being the case. But that may not look like that was your intention. So that's why I have a problem with labeling them nutters, because a lot of them are very clever people. You don't get where you are with the money that Alex Jones has by being a nutter. Now, that said, I do think he's a class A nutter, uh, <laughs> but but not not because he's right wing. I, th I think he's just he's he's putting on an act for some of it, and some of it is just like inherent nuttiness. But I think you have to be careful when you're talking about getting rid of people off a platform and stopping people having a platform that you do it for the right reasons and not just because you're dismissing them as nutty. 
But what about the argument that the likes of Twitter and Facebook are private companies who can do what they like? Well, I suppose Facebook is uh, not private anymore, is it? But um, they are companies anyway who can do whatever they want. It's not like the government is censoring you. It's a free service and they have a terms of service. And if you don't abide by them, then they can just tell you to fuck off. And isn't that how it should be? I mean, our new forum, if people start dropping M-bombs on there, they're getting banned. Simple as that. I partially agree with you in the, yes, the, uh, the, these are um, play spaces. These are sand pits that you are invited to join in. And if you shit in the sand pit, you can be thrown out, right? <laughs> but equally, you, you, you said these are companies, they could do what they like. That's not the case. They can do what they like within the law and within what their shareholders think is appropriate and what their customers think are appropriate. And they have to balance the needs of all of those things, their customers, their shareholders, and you know, the market. And, um, and so they have to be careful. Now, sometimes they do that right and sometimes they do it wrong. Some would argue that Twitter have done it wrong by not banning these people fast enough. Um, and it's very, it's, again, it's very difficult because you ban someone who's on the far fringes at one end. You've got to treat people at the far, the other end the same, even if you agree with them. I think the hard part about expecting, you know, like the, the market to, um, kind of guide these companies is that these companies don't make their money from your users. They make their money from advertisers. And as long as they're still making the ad revenue, like who really cares what their users are happy or not happy with? Like the numbers aren't based on user happiness. So I think that um, it's a little hard to say that their business model will push them to do the things that are in users' interests when they don't make their money that way. So, you know, maybe maybe we do need um, some kind of more protections uh, for speech because these platforms are starting to become more like utilities where if you're not able to function on them, it can really impact your ability to, like, gain employment. I don't think you have to be good on Twitter to get a job, though, do you? I think in some cases there are a lot of uh, recruiters that look into your social media activity and not having any social media presence for them is an unknown factor. And they can't they can't gauge you in the same way they could gauge another candidate. Yeah, I have heard that, that you ought to have um, a kind of real name, you know, real life one that's kind of quite vanilla and just, you know, not any political stuff or whatever, not you going out getting shit-faced and stuff like that Well, if you're in the job market. We talked about this before about, you know, the, the, the judgment call we make based on someone's email address. We do the same thing yeah. with Twitter accounts, GitHub accounts, other online presences. Yeah, totally. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't get rid of those accounts of people who are objectionable. Because if someone was an objectionable person online and they got banned from a social media site, then I probably wouldn't want to hire them. Yeah. What about the hypocrisy, though, that they'll ban someone like Alex Jones, but then uh, there's one particularly bad right-wing nutter on Twitter who's got quite a lot of followers and happens to be a bit orange, who they'll never ban because he's good for business. Right. That's like, how do you get them to enforce their own rules, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he has literally incited violence and stuff on Twitter. And again, that's the balancing act. You, you've you got to service the needs of, you know, the the customers and the, the people who want to see the the like orange spew forth on 
Twitter that from their, their leader, whereas other people don't want to see. I mean, you have a choice. You don't have to use the platform and you don't have to follow those people and you can block and mute. And there are tools that, that mean you don't have to see that kind of stuff, but that, that doesn't make it any better that you still end up seeing it when, when it's in your face. It's, it, it's very difficult. And I, I wouldn't really want to be in their position because if I was, I would probably bring the band hammer down far too hard. Despite everything I've said so far, I'd probably bring the band hammer down too hard and then people would leave. So it's tricky, but um, I think they're in an awkward position of trying to be popular whilst also getting rid of people who are popular. It's funny that people talk about Twitter being a terrible place full of horrible people, but it's not for me at all. There's a few annoying people here and there, but I've blocked a lot of accounts and I've recently taken to muting. I think that's better because they don't realize that they are muted and so they can just shout at you into the void and you just never see it. And I think you can make it a very pleasant place to be if you just ignore the stuff that you don't want to see. I must be doing Twitter wrong because I don't get people shouting at me at all. All oh, right. That's because you're too boring and that must uh, be it. middle of the road. Yep. Too much of a centrist dad. Yep. <laughs> Okay, so for people who don't know, uh, Popey, you work on Snaps for a living at the moment at Canonical. And the idea of Snaps, is it fair to say write once, run everywhere? I know that's kind of a bit hackneyed. Uh, not really. But, it's, um, you know, the idea is un universal packaging for yeah, applications. universal packaging for Linux. Yeah, right. Uh, and Dan, you work on elementary OS where you have very strict guidelines about what an application should look like and how it should behave. And it's very much not about being universal, is it? You don't really care whether the apps in App Center work on other distributions. You're not going to impede that and stop them from working, but that's not your priority at all, is it? It's about having a unified experience on your distro. So is that fair to say? Yeah, we really encouraged uh, developers to follow the human interface guidelines and write to the platform. And we try to communicate them about, you know, what kind of platform features do they want and which ones do they like and help them build apps that are more integrated and not uh, not so much the cross-platform thing. Yeah, and so your whole distro is all about having an experience, isn't it? You present this experience to the user and they sort of like it or lump it at the end of the day because you can't really customize Elementary OS very much at all. You know, you can customize some things, but you've deliberately taken those decisions, haven't you? Those design decisions to say, this is how we think you should use your computer. You are free to use anything else if you want, but we're going to argue the case that this is the best way to do it. I mean, for the most part, it's like, you know, I love cars for these kind of things because, you know, you wouldn't buy a, a truck and then customize it into a car. You would just buy a car. And that's kind of how we design it is we go, well, you know, we're building this kind of utility. And with those assumptions in mind, you know, this is how that kind of thing should work. But um, there are, I think, uh, there's a big room for things like um, customization in terms of like accessibility and things that make the product more accessible to a broader range of people. Um, and those things aren't necessarily design decisions. It's uh, accommodated in different kinds of workflows is a little different from um, removing major design decisions. Yeah. So the question really is, which strategy here is best for desktop Linux? And I don't know even what that means. Does it mean best for each individual distribution or does it mean best for 
the whole ecosystem as it exists at the moment or best for attracting new users? I mean, that's a very much an open-ended question. Well, they're, they're very different. Like you introduced me as, you know, someone who works on packaging software for universal packages for Linux, right? And Dan works on a platform where he's encouraging people to write for that platform. So those are two very different tasks. It's not, it's not apples yeah. and apples, it's apples and oranges, right? So, but, uh, but I can see where you're going with this, right? So you're, you're conflating the fact that you could build for one platform and is it better to have this unified vision, human interface guidelines, where everything is consistent and co coherent, or is it better to pull together um, packages from all over the place that look completely different? Some of them don't work together particularly well because they're maybe different toolkits or they follow different standards or they don't follow any standards at all. Um, and they're all built with like different libraries all over the place, like which is better. And it's it's tricky because I think that element what elementary doing is fantastic, and I love the whole idea of having a coherent platform where there are human interface guidelines, uh, and there are consist there is consistency between applications that someone is making opinionated decisions about what the platform should look like. But that's not where we are. Where we are is people aren't writing apps for elementary. Right now, there are 100 plus apps in elementary, but there are thousands of apps that are not in elementary. And so we want people to be able to use those applications. And so we package them up and make them available. It's not up to us, me, my team, to tell people you should not be writing Electron apps or you should not be writing command line server daemons. You should be writing GTK, Granite, you know, these things. That's, that's not my domain. My domain is to take something somebody else has made, package it up, make it available. Yeah. But you, you say that you kind of admire what elementary are doing and so do I. I mean, it's not for me. Sorry, Dan, but like, you know, I like the old school Windows XP style with my Zubuntu installation, but. You say that, appropriate, but at the same time, are you telling me you're not even slightly annoyed that they don't ship SnapD by default and you have to install that separately? No, because that's their decision. It's their platform. Uh, I, there, are, there are plenty of other places that do ship SnapD, and it's not exactly hard, and it's well documented. Thank you to whoever documented how to install SnapD on elementary. It's not hard to do it. Um, it's, it's, it's not a problem. And we know people do do it, so it's it, it's not like it's broken and it doesn't work. And but the you know part of the problem is, and I can see this from Dan's point of view, is if you do go off piste, and I think they use the term sideload in elementary, an application that isn't part of their guidelines, and then you take a screenshot and show that to, to Dan or Cassidy, they'll probably freak because it looks wrong, like. Because it doesn't, but but it's not Dan's system. It's somebody. It's a it's a consumer system, and they choose what to do with their computer. If I want to have um, my screen resolution at ten twenty four by seven six eight and have bright pink uh, Hannah Montana color scheme, that's my choice. Right? It's the end user's computer. Um, 
but you can only do so much to put them in within your guidelines that you you think are the right way to do it. Yeah, I don't think that uh, we want to restrict users from sidelining in any way. And like Alan said, it's pretty easy to uh, open App Center and look for uh, Snaptastic is an app someone uh, built, and it pulls in SnapD automatically, and then you can use that to install Snap packages all day. Um, so it's up to users to decide, you know, what kind of applications they want to run on their system. And we know that uh, there will always be certain kinds of applications that need to be sideloaded uh, from um, software developers that don't care to support uh, any kind of Linux, let alone uh, Elementary OS specifically. But on the other hand, um, you know, what uh, our users are telling us is that when uh, they use their web browser and they hit maximize, they expect it to have window decorations, which Chrome did not for a long time. Or when they right click, uh, they expect the menu to stay open and not close immediately, which Firefox currently does. Uh, or you know any number of like weird issues that side loaded apps have uh, when they uh, change the localization of their system, they expect the applications to adapt. Or when they go to accessibility settings and have large fonts. They want the applications to do that. Like there's so many platform integration features that um, these applications don't necessarily follow because they're not native, um, that they, they frustrate users and the users don't understand why they're not working. So uh, what we're trying to do is encourage developers to write to the platform conventions and with the toolkit that we've embraced um, so that when users use their applications to get the experience that they're expecting to have. It's just two very different approaches to attract new people to Linux. I mean, I, I assume that all three of us want to attract as many people as possible to using Linux and open source and free software, whatever you want to call it. And it, it's just a fundamentally different approach, isn't it? I mean, what you are doing, Dan, is trying to make the best thing that you can and say, look, we'll put this out there and hopefully everyone will use it. Whereas... I don't know, is it not a bit more pragmatic what you and your team are doing, Popey? Well, we're not trying to get people to write apps. We're, we're, we're not out there saying you should write apps uh, for GTK or you should write apps for Qt. I would love it if there were people making more GTK apps and more Qt apps and uh, more command line server demons and command line utilities and all these different things because like, the desktop is only part of the story. I spent today sat in between two two developers of high-quality, well-known uh, software, neither of which are desktop applications. And they both have many thousands of installs, um, but they're, they're, they're not desktop apps. Now, they don't meet the elementary design guidelines because one of them is a command... Well, they're both command-line server applications that run in the background and have a web UI as a, as a front-end that has a custom designed user interface that doesn't look anything like anything else. So, you know, they, those things are still valuable to users and users can make those the choice. But what do we do? Do we cut off our nose to spite our face and say, no, we're not going to package that software because it doesn't look like Ubuntu or it doesn't look like SUSE Linux or it doesn't look like whatever other distro. Like if every single distro said, no, we're going to be opinionated, our app store will only show applications built for our platform, then... The fragmentation would be worse. Like, I, you know, I could run Red Hat Linux and only see a, a minute subset of the applications in the entire Linux ecosystem, or I could run SUSE and see a different set of applications. 
And that, to some degree, happens already. People say, oh, I want to run Steam, and they know that Ubuntu is a good place to get Steam. But there's some other application that actually is in the AUR and isn't packaged in Ubuntu or Fedora or somewhere else. You know, there's already that fragmentation because people go to a platform for the applications. It's it's a hard problem to solve, and we're just trying to make it so that every application is available so people can make their choice and just pick whatever Linux they want and then install the applications on top. Every application, including proprietary ones like Spotify, for example. Sure. We don't judge. Yeah. Dan, I've spoken to you about this before, and everything in the App Center is open source, isn't it, at the moment? I mean, how would you feel if, you know, supposing Spotify came to you and said that we want to design it, you know, in Vala and with GTK and make it look properly integrated, but we don't want to release that source code? How would you feel about shipping proprietary stuff like that? I, you know, I don't know. I mean, we'd have to really talk about it and think about it because right now, kind of the whole messaging around App Center is that everything in there is open source. And we've kind of like set up these expectations and made these promises to our users that when they open App Center and they grab an application from there, they can trust that the application is this and that and this and that. And if we if we start to bend that, um, then our messaging becomes, I think, a lot looser around like why why does App Center matter or what is it you know why should people even write for our platform if it just does the same thing as all the other platforms? And, and we've had some some years of being pragmatic in Ubuntu specifically we've had some years of being pragmatic and um not making it hard for people to install non-free software and some other distros have actually gone out of their way to make it difficult for people to put free software uh, non-free software on their systems and now they're starting to change like some of those other distros where previously it was very difficult to get uh, binary uh, graphics drivers or where it was difficult to get um, third-party applications which are non-free they're they're softening their stance in the same way that we did this like 10 plus years ago made it like pretty straightforward to put non-free software i mean it's not something to celebrate it's not yeah we're the best way for you to get proprietary software on your linux desktop but the fact remains that's what people want people want access to slack and spotify and skype because they want to communicate with other people listen to music chat to their parents and and no matter how much you try and get them to use the free software alternatives, there are billions of people who aren't using those free software alternatives. And so we're pragmatic and say, okay, we'll make those things available for you, let you know that they're under a non-free license, but it's your choice. It's your computer. We can't tell you what to do with your computer. Yeah, and I think that our kind of strategy for that is that you know, App Center as a store and as a platform comes with a series of expectations and standards. Um, but, you know, if, if you want to uh, use those kind of applications, closed source applications or applications that are designed, um, you know, not with the system in mind that like sideloading is the way to do that. And uh, package formats like Snap and the Snap Store and uh, Flatpak and Flathub make it really easy for people to sideload those kind of applications these days. It's not like the old days where you are dependent on an application being available in your distro's repository. It's a lot easier to sideload in 2018. But then there's the issue of support, isn't there? On the one hand, if you are running a distro and people start sideloading, as you call it, snaps or flat packs or app images or whatever, or even devs, and then they don't work properly and then they come to you, then that is a support headache that you didn't ask for. Well, we just tell them flat out that, you know, we we didn't distribute that, so we don't support it. Like, you have need to go to the application author for support. 
Yeah, and then there's the other side, and I saw you have a bit of a Barney over the uh, flat hub situation where they were packaging your applications, which were then being run on other distributions, and people were looking for support from you, and you have no interest in that. Yeah, and I think that's a case of kind of um, a miscommunication of intent. If a developer puts their app up and they say, my app is cross-platform and I want to support it through this platform and I packaged it this way and distribute it this way, then you know that's what their intent was. But um, if a developer uh, specifically released their app on iOS and it was an open source app and somebody grabbed it and distributed it on Android, like, why would you expect the developer to support or care about that? Like, that wasn't their intent. They didn't do that, and they didn't want to do that. Yeah, but to be fair, the difference between iOS and Android is much more different than than two different Linux distros, like Elementary and Ubuntu, which it's based on. You know, you would kind of expect an elementary application to work better on Ubuntu than you would on Windows. And, you know, in some cases, the platforms are diverged enough that it is very different. Like desktop environments are very different. You know, XFCE is a a very, very different desktop environment from uh, Pantheon is a different environment from KDE. They all have different uh, ways to integrate with the platform. And some applications just do not run outside of their platform because they're expecting to have system APIs that do not exist. Just because it has a Linux kernel underneath it doesn't mean that it's compatible. Yeah, and we we used to get people coming to the Ubuntu IRC channel asking for support, and they start detailing some crazy wacky thing that's going on with their system. And we uh, when we start probing for a little more system details, they say, "Yeah, yeah, it's Ubuntu," because they know they'll get good support in that channel. And then when you probe a little bit further and you start looking at the libraries they've got installed, you realize actually they're running Linux Mint or they're running um, Kali Linux or some other you know pen testing distro that's based on Ubuntu. And we tell them to go and find their support for their system because while they are somewhat related and somewhat common, there's enough different, like you know a derivative that decides to sh- to ship Jack instead of Pulse Audio. That, like we have never shipped Jack by default, and so anyone who tries to do support on Ubuntu, if if they don't know the Jack demon very well, then they're they're going to be out of luck providing support. So it's not unreasonable to say, I don't want to support that platform because it's different enough than what I know, and plus I actually have all these other people over here who are on the platform that I do target who need my time. Do I spend my time, my valuable time, supporting people on a platform that I didn't create, that I don't particularly feel invested in and I don't care about, or should I spend my time invested in the platform that I actually made? And I think Dan's pretty reasonably wants to support the people on the platform he made. And yet, that's exactly what you do for a living, isn't it? You've just described no. everything that you don't want to do, and that's your job is to support these snaps on all sorts of obscure distributions. You've got like 50 VMs running or whatever to test all this. No, it's not necessarily it's not necessarily me that supports them. It's the software vendor. We try and so like we go and speak to people like Skype and Spotify and Slack. And we have lengthy conversations with them and they have to go away and consider whether they want to package their application in one of these new formats. And they have to decide what that support burden is going to be like. And is it going to be worse for their support operatives to have to support one package across eight distros? Or is it going to be easier for them to have four different bespoke packages for those different distros and different releases of distros? And they've made the judgment call that it's 
better to have one snap for all of those distros. And it's not me that's supporting it. I'm encouraging them to do that, but they have to make that decision themselves. Just like Dan makes his decision for his software, Spotify have made the decision for theirs. So if you want, if you want support for Spotify on Linux as a snap, you go to Spotify. They will help you. They have a dedicated forum for it. If you have a problem with Skype as a snap on Linux, you go to Microsoft and they will help you. I think one place that we can both uh, agree is that a source of major problems, especially regarding support, is with the maintainer model. And I think both of the models that we're pursuing takes away that software maintainer idea of taking other people's software and distributing it on their behalf. Because that's, that's the thing that gets users in trouble. Right, that gets you the X screensaver problem that Jamie Zawinski has, where <laughs> Debian redistribute his software and uh, it's broken and it's old, and he doesn't want to have to support it. But because his email address is in there, people contact him, and you know you don't want to be that software developer who's um, got a limited amount of their spare time. You know they're working all day and they've got family and they've got to you know do all their usual chores, and then they've got a couple of hours maybe in the evening to work through some support tickets. Do they support the people who've gone directly to him, who've downloaded the tubble from him, or does he support these people who are running? Eon's old versions of his software that he's already fixed. You know, you've got to respect the developer, I think. Right, another hashtag ask error. How can you be remembered in a thousand years without being evil? So if you're a, you know, Genghis Khan or a Hitler or whatever, I would imagine Hitler will be remembered in a thousand years but how can you be remembered for not being evil kind of seems like be a philosopher or a mathematician right well maybe i mean is stephen hawking going to be remembered in a thousand years i don't know i just meant uh in terms of what we remember now of good people from long ago i suppose yeah like greek philosophers and stuff yeah hmm authors filmmakers that's the media of now isn't it will Mm. people still be watching films in a thousand years and will Uncle Buck stand out as one of the best films <laughs> of the 20th century? I think so. <laughs> I think you mean Con Air. Or that might have been 21st century. What about inventors? Do you think that we'll still remember uh, you know, the inventors that kind of were big during the Industrial Revolution and all this? Hmm. It's weird because I think there are people, I think there's a generational thing where you. Like at school, I remember getting taught who invented the telephone and who invented the television. And no, America, you're wrong. It wasn't Farnsworth. It was John Logie Baird. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, like, and those were of that generation. I don't know. I don't remember like people inventing certain types of bridges. Although I know, I know of a couple of engineers who made you know impressive bridges and tunnels and stuff. And if I go further back, I'm not sure what I would remember. But I would imagine in in 300, 500 years' time, they will be taught about who historically made things that were appropriate for them recently, like who made the first flying car or who made the first fully autonomous heart surgeon or, you know, stuff that is of the now. I, you know, I, I, I think you if you want to be remembered for a thousand years, you've got to do something really, really significant. And, uh, yeah, that probably does mean killing a lot of people. <laughs> So, the pros and cons of breeding. Now, Dan, I've spoken to you about this previously, and you have plans to have kids in a kind of vague, at some point over the horizon type situation. 
Popa, you have got two wonderful children. I am not going to have children and have taken steps in order to do so. So I thought we should talk about this. Um, do you regret having kids then, Popey, first of all? Oh, my God. I wonder what you're going to say. You can't possibly ask me that. <laughs> <laughs> Given how fucked up the world is. Like, okay, well, that obviously you're not going to say that you regret having them because they are wonderful. Um, but here's a better question for you. If you could advise them whether or not to have kids, what would you say? Yeah, I'd probably say don't. Um, it's weird because sometimes I do imagine, like, you know, everyone imagines interesting scenarios, you know. Sometimes I imagine that I can fly or that I'm invisible and sometimes I imagine that I don't have children and what, what my life would have been like. That. It's not that I don't want them or I wish they went away. It's just that I wonder how my life would be different. And I do I do wonder if if I hadn't met someone who was uh you know normal like my wife is and (laughs) and um was willing to procreate with me uh whether i would actually turn into one of those people who just um a nerd who has difficulty socializing with with you know my favorite gender and you know would just turn into a bit of a slob i think i think there's danger that that could have happened so you there's a danger that you could have turned into me is what you're saying uh yeah kind of um (laughs) because that's what i was like before i started dating because i was quite late to that and uh yeah i was a bit of a like a slobby nerd and it actually took girlfriends to educate me on you know buying new clothes and showering and stuff and and so i I know that's got not not a lot to do with children, but you know the 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 concept. I my my alternate life. I don't think of myself as pilot or international playboy if I didn't have children. <laughs> I think of myself as like the worst of me if I didn't. You have think of yourself as that guy in the South Park episode with the World of Warcraft? Yeah, 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 totally with a hand brace and yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. exactly who I would be. Yes. So Dan, where do you stand on this now? Are you still eagerly awaiting the arrival of your children? Well, I think, you know, like we talked before, uh, having children is probably the worst thing you could possibly do for the environment, right? Like on objective measures, when you look at it, you're like, uh, you know, this probably makes me a bad person to have kids, really. But I don't know, for some reason, whether it's just like biology or idealism or what it is, um, there is some part of me that's always thought that, you know, someday I'll be a father and I'll have children and, uh, you know, I'll show them these things or teach them these things or have these kind of experiences with them or, um, you know, help them in this way or I don't know. I think that for some reason there there is some kind of a desire there to say, you know, for the next generation, it's a chance to kind of improve and start over and um, kind of show them things that I wish that I knew or give them a leg up or uh, I don't know. There's there's some kind of desire there to do better next time. Yeah. And and I, you know, my, my personal circumstance meant that I desired my children to have a better circumstance than I did. And, you know, all parents, all, you know, sane medically coherent people want their children to have a better life you, know, life. you know, if someone's a drug dealing alcoholic and is very down on their luck, they may not think about the welfare of their children, but like a you know, normal level-headed, well, um, well-adjusted person will probably want what's best for their kids. And I want, I wanted kids to have 
um, a decent life, a good start, you know, do whatever I can to make sure that they get a foot on the ladder and all that. Um, just like anyone else would want that. Um, I don't know if I've done a good job or we've done a good job or not. You will never know until like, you know, 50 years time, um, when you find out, but it's, having a go, it's not a bad idea, but I, I, I see Dan's point, like, as we've discussed before, it's, it is difficult because, I don't know, at the time, when if, when we first had kids, bear in mind that was like 15 years ago, I didn't really think about the carbon footprint. That wasn't even a phrase I think I even uttered 15 years ago, carbon footprint. And so it never entered my head that, you know, these resources in the world that I'm using up by um, popping out a couple of kids um it, it, it was in, and and I've looked back now I think it's you know pretty selfish thing to do um and I've had discussions with friends who say they're not having kids because you know of the resources it uses and they would rather you know use those resources on themselves rather than well they're lying about caring about the environment that's just the excuse that we use for being like a self-centered child man child or woman child because that's really what it boils down to I like to say the reason I'm not having kids is because of the environment and because the world's really fucked up and all the rest of it. But the reality is I'm, I am, well, it's, it's like a good friend of mine once said to me, he said that he is selfless and responsible enough to admit that he is too selfish and irresponsible to have children. <laughs> and that, that pretty much sums it up. I'm just too selfish and irresponsible. I would just be a terrible, terrible father. And so that's why I decided when I was a kid that I wasn't having my own and also, I can't relate to kids very well. I can barely relate to adults. So I just hate like that awkward thing when you meet someone's kids and you're just like, I can't have a proper conversation with you. You're not a proper human yet. So I just don't know how to relate to you. And when people, when I was a kid and people would start talking down to me like an idiot, I'd say, why are you talking to me like that? Talk to me normally. But apparently I was not normal. I mean, at what age do you think they, they, they're capable of having a normal conversation? I just get in from work just now, and Sam came barreling out of his bedroom to tell me that there's this new, I don't know, L72 gun in Rust, and it has a range of 1,062 yards, whereas the old Bolt uh, rifle had a range of 560 yards or something like that. Uh, and if you get these gloves, then... And we uh, we had this, this whole conversation about... Uh, cool guns in a game we both enjoy so there's that shared experience and and that we have yeah but he's like 10 ish 12 yeah well there you go yeah once they get to about that age they're proper humans but i'm right. talking like you know six seven year olds right but they're only they're only six or seven for like ooh, two years uh, that that passes like surprisingly quickly that they they become uh capable of coherent speech pretty quickly and able to carry a conversation and have their own opinions about what foods they like and don't like and whether they want to go to Nan's house or not. Uh, they have, you know, they, they have opinions. I, I think they're, they're, uh, I think it's fantastic that there are these creatures inside my house that I can have conversations with. And I don't mean the cats. <laughs> no, you just talk at them. Yes. But I don't know, like until you can talk to someone about the nature of reality, it's not a proper conversation, is it really? Wow. Yeah, I don't know, but I, you know, I love a three-year-old because they just 
love information. You know, they're excited to learn everything and it doesn't even matter. Like counting is boring. Numbers are not fun. And three-year-olds is like, I can count to 10. This is the coolest shit in the world. <laughs> like they just love it. And they just want to, they just want to count to 10. And you know, you can do that with them. And like, they're just excited about the world because everything is brand new to them. And I think that's like such a really interesting thing to be able to show someone things that they've never seen before, even if those things are really simple. And there's something incredible about being a 30, 40 year old man laying on the floor on your stomach playing with Lego. That's especially when they wander off and do something else or they go for a lie down and you carry on staying on the floor <laughs> playing Lego for another two hours after that. Oh no, I'll build that for you. Uh, that's, that's magical. I think you mean Legos. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice.